0: Good evening, everyone. Thank you ever so much for braving the chilly London exterior outside. Um, Tonight's lecture should leave you with a bit of fire in your belly, though, because it's about grappling with one of those hidden subjects that everyone knows goes on in the family courtroom. But in fact, we don't articulate why we have a particular class of parent in the court and what goes on outside the courtroom in terms of making sure they shouldn't need access to child protection lawyers. So tonight's lecture will be posing five questions through me to you, and I will give you some of the answers. But the most important thing about tonight's lecture is just to ask the questions, because the answers aren't (coughs) straightforward, they are not simple, but they require thought and they require engagement by you, members of the society, so we can make the best decisions for the children who, in all of the family cases, come at the centre of all the decisions we make. So, what are the five questions? First, should a disability prevent someone from being a good enough parent? Now, I'm pausing there because I'm hoping that there should be an immediate reaction from you and all those who are listening on the web to say, of course not. But is that right? And we'll go on to explore why I think it is uh, later on in the lecture. We need to be able to provide assistance and support to those who are in need to give them a chance to parent their children. Should disabilities, sorry, what disabilities does the court encounter? Is vulnerability the same as disability? So where is the difference between disability, difficulty and vulnerability and what difference does that range of skills uh, indicate they need in terms of giving support in the right area? Question three. What does the family justice system do to protect the rights of the disabled person to make sure that they are adequately giving adequate care to their child? The last penultimate one are the two which are at the centre, I think, of um, the debate I'd like to have, which is how can a vulnerable parent be helped to ensure their voice is heard in court? And then lastly, beyond the courtroom. Do we really make a difference when we bring parents and children to the court uh, environment and what could we do to assist them in society? So, five questions. Start off, I think, at the hallmark, the watermark, the baseline upon which we should start this debate. And it comes from no finer words than um, Headley Jay-Z then was endorsed by our president, uh, James Mumby. Society must be willing to tolerate very diverse standards of parenting, including the eccentric, the barely adequate, the inconsistent. It is not the provenance of the state to spare children all the consequences of defective parenting in any event it simply could not be done. The family justice system is not in the business of social engineering. We do not and should not remove children from parents who are poor, in education, expectations and employment, to place them in a more well-manicured, tended garden with pelts and pans and pets, with middle-class people who can look after them and wish to look after them. It is not adoption by default. That is not the ethos of the family justice system. The ethos of the family justice system should be as it is, to make sure that children have a chance to remain within their birth family for so long and until... The point of the remaining there means they cannot do so, if to do so means that they suffer avoidable harm and neglect. So what's this lecture about? Well, the lecture is about disability, much of the case law in the course of the last 10 years has focused on learning disability, but in fact, the lessons that we get from the case law should extend, I believe, across all the range of vulnerabilities that we have in society. And this quote, I think, from uh, one of my favourite judges declaring an interest here, um, Mr Justice Baker, I think, sums up why we need to look afresh at how we um, look at parents who have vulnerabilities and disabilities and difficulties and how far we go to try to address that gap between what they want to do as a parent and what they can do. The last 30 years have seen a radical reappraisal in the way in which people with learning disabilities are treated in society it's now recognised that they need to be supported and enabled to lead their lives as full members of the community, free from discrimination and prejudice. Now, that's a statement of principle, but the explanation is just as important. And he went on to say, this policy is right not only for the individual, since it gives due respect to his or her personal autonomy and human rights. We all have a right to be who we are and respected for who we are. But moreover, also for society at large, since it's to the benefit of the whole community that all people are included and respected as equal members of society. We are not a homogenous group. We are a mixture of strengths and vulnerabilities, prejudices with skills and weaknesses, and that very diversity means that we make up the best of society, because if we become too similar, if we become the same, then we become average and mediocre, and good and great things are not done by the mediocre. We need to have a massive range of challenges to us to make sure we fulfil not only our potential, I believe, but we do the best for those that we mix with within society. Consequences were spelt out here by Mr Justice Baker. One consequence of this change in attitude has been a wider acceptance that people with learning disability may, in many cases with assistance, be able to bring up children successfully. Just pausing there, key words. People with disabilities may, with support, be able to bring up their children successfully. This is not a dogma to say under no circumstances should children remain with birth families who have difficulties, nor is a dogma to say they can't and therefore must be removed. Every child and every family has to be looked at individually because every child is as unique as its DNA. But the child must be looked at in the context of the family from which it comes. So what do we do about that? Well, we do something about it because we're told we have to by laws that have been passed that means that we have obligations uh, to fulfill within society at large. The Equality Act imposes a duty on local authorities to make reasonable adjustments so as to eliminate discrimination and to advance equality of opportunity. Within the lecture notes that are outside, and you can have when the lecture ends, everything that I have to say, and far more than I can possibly say in 50 minutes, has been put down within the notes with the references, because the Equality Act 210 is just the tip of the iceberg of what the other requirements are through a, a web, a labyrinthine web of case law and precedent and statute that means there are obligations to make sure that we support those who are in need within the community. So when I'm talking about disability and when in the lecture notes you see reference to cases that talk about learning disability, do we simply pigeonhole disability or difficulty and say that because it concerns someone who's learning disabled, the lessons we have in the case law relates only to them? And the answer must be no. And I say no not only because I think it's the practical, pragmatic and right thing to say, but also because the President says it's the right thing to say. So that's fine by me. So he was particularly dealing with a case, dealing with parents who had quite pronounced learning difficulties, and he was being posed some really challenging questions by the advocates who appeared in front of him. And he was being asked to say, are we unfairly labelling learning disabled people as unable to parent? Because we assume they cannot parent, because we assume their capacity to change is so limited, therefore there can't be advancement and there can't be improvement are we expecting too high a standard of them, whereas if we have, for example, a physical disability which was very visible and wasn't hidden, where we knew we had to provide access to a room, where we knew we had to provide amendments within the home to make sure the child could be taken out of the bed, where we knew we had to provide taxes to make sure that the child got from the house to the school or the nursery. Is it any difference Because learning disability or mental health is less visible to us? And the answer must be no. But we have to try harder to identify what the extent of the need is. So just to summarize, this is the question that was posed and how we answered it. Here, the parents, as I say, with learning difficulties need help. But how, they asked, do these parents with their particular difficulties differ from a parent physically disabled by thalidomide or the parent who's blind? The fact that such parents may be receiving a high level of help and support does not, they say, mean they are not bringing up their children. Why, they ask rhetorically, should it be any different for these parents with their difficulties? It's a good question. And why is it important? It is important because we within the family justice system know that family ties should not be severed save in very exceptional circumstances. Everything we can do within a legitimate margin should be done to preserve personal relationships and where appropriate to rebuild a family or even to build a family. It's not enough to simply say that a child could have a better upbringing, a better outcome placed in a better, more resourced family. Another quote one that you will have seen referenced in previous lectures, but one which I think is, is at the heart of what we do. And if I say it out loud now to those that haven't attended previous audiences, and I want its message, please, to filter through and the rest of the lecture that follows. We are all frail human beings with our fair share of unattractive character traits, which sometimes manifest themselves in bad behaviours which may be copied by our children. But the state does not and cannot take away the children of all the people who commit crimes, who abuse alcohol or drugs, who suffer from physical or mental illness, or espouse antisocial, political and religious beliefs. We do not take children away from people who support the English Defence League, unless there are indications within the home that they are being exposed to harm or abuse or neglect. We do not have Section 31 of the Children Act, which says, by the way, um, we will intervene to protect a child from significant harm in these circumstances, but we've got an added criteria, which is if you happen to have a political view or if you haven't have a disability, then the standard is lower. There is one standard that has to be applied when the state decides whether or not a child is at risk or has suffered significant harm and what to do as a consequence. And that barrier, that threshold, which I've spoken about in previous lectures, is there because there must be a legitimate legal threshold based on evidence that is proven and tested in order to justify why the state has a right to interfere in your family life at all. My question that I have, and it remains unanswered, um, despite research for this lecture and my practice and sitting, is when we're talking about support services and when we're talking about the small number of cases that come before the courts, where there is a raft of dedicated lawyers who step in, who scrutinise social service records, who ask questions of social workers, who require there to be intermediaries in order to get the best voice for the client that's in front of them, who want answers from adult disabilities. In that small percentage of cases, where we look back over the child and the family's lives and we can see where they have slipped through the net, and where services that they were entitled to haven't been provided, not because there's any malice in the system, but because the system is overstretched, under-resourced, and has many, many holes through which families fall. There are a small percentage of cases where we can come in and we can ask questions, we can make changes, we can require care plans, we can try to give the child and the family the best option. But... How many families are let down at grassroots level because they are invisible to social services? And when you are talking about disability or vulnerability, you are talking about that particular class of parents who are likely to be the least able to articulate articulate that they need help. And when they do say they need help, they're least able to challenge a decision they're not entitled to it. And so they go out of... Sight out of mind, but not they and their family's needs do not correspondingly diminish. How many children are taken into state care, which we call accommodation, based on a voluntary agreement because the parents aren't able to cope, when in fact, with support, they may be able to cope if support was targeted at their level of disability or their need? And in particular, how many children remain in that state of voluntary accommodation? because the parents don't know that it's not a finite state, where they do not know they can challenge and ask for support to be given and to have their children return to them under appropriate circumstances. And that's a loss for the parents, but the consequence for the child can be extremely profound. And this is why those questions are so pertinent, I think, and it's because of the interrelationship of the type of families that come before our care courts between disability, poverty, and vulnerability. And that flowchart is there in a circle for a very obvious and profound reason, and that's because you do not label someone as disabled without realising that that disability occurs in the context of a social network, potentially a lack of support, where that brings about it other problematic behaviours, such as, such as alcoholism, such as being targeted for abuse by others, such as depression, which leads into a cycle of loss, including financial loss and poverty. So when one is looking to see whether or not a child can safely remain within its home, cared for by its parents who are disabled, you cannot simply look at the disability without looking at the consequences of that disability, and the fact that that disability happens to a family, a real family, not a number, not a label, who may have a catalogue of reasons why they have struggled. There is no simple answer, but it requires engagement with the whole of the fabric of the family, not simply the label of disability. Children of parents with learning difficulties often do not enter the child protection system as a result of abuse by their parents. More regularly, the prevailing concerns centre on the perceived risk of neglect, both as a result of the parents' intellectual limitations and the impact of social and economic deprivation commonly faced by adults with learning difficulties. Now, that quote came from a case which, if any of you have any interest in the rights of the disabled, you should read. Um, it's an Irish case, uh, Gill and Jay. But the profound wisdom with which that judge tackled the difficulties of the parents in front of him and then tried to extend his learning to extrapolate uh, guidance for the rest of us which should be applied is a case that I would recommend to you more than I think almost any other. Because when you have a case which sets out what should be done as well as what can be done and how it can be done, that threefold approach, which one rarely gets in any joined-up thinking... And when you know that that case has been so well crafted that the president embraces it and it becomes the benchmark upon which we adopt these cases, then that's the one to go to. I mentioned that quote and those words because it brings me around almost 360 degrees to one of the first lectures I gave as your professor, which was to identify the nature of the clients that come before the child protection system, because those clients I come across when I'm acting as their representative, as a silk, or those cases I come across when I'm acting as a judge, or those when I'm discussing cases with my friends and supporting others, have a hallmark which can be broken down into three composite ingredients, I think, which is poverty. Clients that we have are poor in income, education, and opportunities. They're vulnerable through drug addiction, alcoholism, domestic violence, and quite often come with a historical um, history of abuse themselves. And disability, mental health, learning difficulties, physical disability, as I say, alcoholism. And it is something which those within the system know, but is rarely spoken about openly outside, that very few middle-class and uh, more affluent families come before the family justice system. And why is that? And the answer isn't because they are innately better at the point of birth. It's because if you have the privilege of a good education, if you have the advantages of being brought up by parents who've had a good background themselves that hasn't been marred by poverty and lack of opportunity then you become a parent to parent children as you have parented yourself. If you are a parent who has an education and is able to articulate what they want, when your child gets into trouble with school, you go down to see the headmistress or the headmaster, and you say, what's going on? And you ask questions, and you engage, and you explore, and you seek support, you have a dialogue. If your child has an illness, which someone might think is otherwise abuse, You go to the hospital and you explain to the nurses and the doctors what has happened and you give an account. If you have a child who falls into addiction, you have the money and the intelligence and the education to go to your doctor to seek out support for that child. If your husband becomes an alcoholic, you have friends you can turn to. You have a support network. All of those factors mean that you have a raft of support, which means that you do not ordinarily come to the attention of social services whereas those who do not have those advantages who are at the crossroads of choices where there's a very very steep drop between some of the choices they make do but we need to think because the balancing exercise that the judge conducts in court can't be swayed by sympathy for a parent and for the family of neglect it may come from Because ultimately, the choice has to be made for the welfare of the child, which trumps whatever degree of sympathy and compassion you might have for the reasons why the parent and the child is in court. Because if you are looking at disability and you have identified whatever package of support is necessary to enable the the parent to properly parent the child, but that package of support is so intense that effectively we have a raft of professionals coming into the family home to ameliorate the deficits in parenting to the point where that constant roster of professionals coming into the home effectively means that the professionals, an ever-changing sea of professionals, are effectively parenting the child, then that comes at a point where your desire to enable the child to be brought up by its parents has come at the cost of the level of burden intrusion on the child's life with a lack of (coughs) single-identifiable careable parent, that means that that balance has to then shift in favour of seeing if the child needs alternative parenting. It's a high-risk scenario because if we make the wrong choice, if we remove children from disabled and vulnerable families because we don't put the support in when it would otherwise make a difference... If we remove those children, we place them for adoption, a closed adoption, which severs all legal ties with the birth family, and we get it wrong, then we have made a profound mistake for the child and for the family. On the other hand, if we leave the child with the family, but the support services either aren't utilised by the family or they fall away, we again do a grave disservice to the child because we expose it to a risk of harm and neglect and impairment of its development which otherwise we could have protected it from. There is no easy answer in the family court system. What there is is a child and a family and a list of issues to be explored with the greatest de- degree of skill and dedication that one can bring to pair upon the subject. So what disabilities does the court encounter and is vulnerability the same as disability? Well, A non-exclusive list, but just to give you an idea. Physical disability, autism, deafness, Asperger's, blindness, mental disorders, learning disabilities, learning language impairment. So things that aren't obvious, that don't have a label, that don't come with a tag that you can easily attach things to. All of those things are more, and moreover, not as singles if you have any one of those problems, for the reasons I've, I've said before, because with disability comes vulnerability and often poverty, then you are likely to encounter a range of issues which come in addition to the disability or difficulty itself. And what if, for example, you have a parent who is deaf? Well, that's fine. You get interpreters, don't you, in order to give them a voice in court. But what if the interpreter is a British Um, interpreter, B-L-S, British language, and you have a Bengali parent in front of you. Well you can't write things down because they're illiterate and you can't take things very slowly because simply writing things down or getting interpreter isn't good enough because they have profound learning disabilities and then on top of that they have mental health issues. Now, just in case you think I'm over-egging the cake here, I'm not. That's a case I dealt with as a judge. It came before me as a final hearing where, with the best will in the world, the advocates and the judge hitherto in case management had thought that as long as they had the adult support worker in court and as long as they allowed breaks in the evidence and as long as they spoke very, very slowly, then it would all be all right. But it clearly isn't, and it wasn't, which is why in that case, I asked for an intermediary to be approached in order to guide me through what the level of need was, and I'll explain what an intermediary is slightly later in this lecture. We had a relay system of interpreters, because if you think about it logically, if someone can't read, and if their only means of communication is signing, then how can you have a witness in the witness box who's talking orally in English, you have the parent who is deaf in front of you, where do you have the signer? Because they've got to be visible to the witness to translate and to the parent to translate. And because sign language is such a creative, individualistic, masterful, unique skill, you have relay interpreters because it's so intense they need supports. It was a challenging task, but one which had to be done in order for the child and the child's option to remain in the family to be fully articulated and the evidence properly tested in court. So, don't panic. If you work hard, if you ask the right questions, if you turn to the right people for support, and if you are prepared to say, I don't know, even if you're the advocate, the lawyer or the judge, then there are the tools available in order to make the decisions to help you come to a conclusion. Because we are in this... Business. We are in this job because we actually embrace what seems to be a bit of a roving door, but the Lord Chief Justice, in his welcome speech upon taking office in October 2017, exhorted to be the principle upon which justice should work. He said, We must work to ensure that justice is at the centre of our society to secure access to justice for all, whatever their means or abilities. Vulnerability. I've talked about disability. I do not think there is anything so distinct as disability, difficulty, and vulnerability. They are all shades, and the question is, at what point does the person's difficulty or vulnerability or disability become so significant it impacts upon their capacity to play a part in the court system? And I'm strengthened in that view, because if I look at the Convention of Rights of the Person's Disabilities Act 2006, I can see that the very concept of disability being a fluid state is one that's been embraced and endorsed it can change by society from society it can change from day to day it can be transient it can be situational or environmental so if i come to court and i make a decision based on my client's interaction with me at that one particular morning that she is not as vulnerable as i had fear from looking at the papers That means I need to inquire what's calmed her down, how she is. It does not mean that that snapshot means that she has no needs. Tick, done, move on to the next level. There is a constant duty on all of us to make sure that we constantly assess, evaluate and ask challenging questions discreetly, in a positive way and without judgment to make sure that clients who appear vulnerable are not those who have a hidden vulnerability which we're not identifying. Uh, Mr Justice Cobb gave a phenomenal keynote speech to the Family Law Bar Association in November 2017. And I'm going to pluck this particular paragraph from his lecture because I can't improve upon his words. Vulnerability is not a homogenous concept. It manifests itself in many forms. Some exhibit their vulnerability visibly and unmistakably, others subtly, silently and discreetly. There are those whose vulnerability is defined by their age, the children and the elderly, or mental incapacity. There are those who are paralyzingly vulnerable because of the pavers of others towards them, suffering intimidation and persecution. Some deliberately hide their vulnerability out of shame or fear. The spouse who bears the emotional and unhealed wounds of years of control and coercion. And then there's a cohort populated by many others, including those with learning difficulties, dyslexia, dyspraxia, behavioural disorders, ADHD or Asperger's syndrome. The list goes on, but it's the next category that requires your attention. There is a huge class who aren't readily defined or identified by label or category, but who are vulnerable because of the legacy of their own upbringing. Adults who, as children, were abandoned, criticised, overprotected, abused, deprived or received parenting which simply was not good enough. And because that impacted on their pattern of behavior in their childhoods, it has reverberated through their adult lives, and they go on to be parents who repeat those characteristics characteristics tragically, recreating the very situations which they themselves were mistreated under. That is the large class of the vulnerable, and I refer to them as being vulnerable by adverse experience. I think they are powerful and profound words. Parents do not come to you with signs around their neck. They may have many tattoos, but the one they won't have on their forehead says, help me. It won't say, I am an alcoholic. It won't say, I left school at the age of 14 with no qualifications, and by the way, it was a special school. (coughs) Parents do not come to you with their cap in hand saying, I have this need, help me. You have to inquire of them, and you have to inquire in a way which shouldn't make them ashamed of their past, because you need to explore how best they can give their evidence. Because unless you do, when this court is deciding what to do with their child, they are not going to have a chance to give you the best instructions. And without giving you the best instructions, you can't enable the court to have the best evidence to make the best decision for the judge. So you don't simply pick up a brief unblinkingly, unthinkingly, read the black and white words on the page and go in and simply act on what you are told. You inquire. You have to be inquisitive. You have to be curious. That's the hallmark of the best lawyers. Those that go out and seek answers to questions which have occurred to them and them alone. And that takes me to question three. What does the family justice system do to protect the rights of the disabled person to be a parent and the child to be adequately parented? Just to give you an idea about the scale of the problem and focusing back on learning disabilities for the moment. A number of studies, and I thought there are so many, but I p- wanted to pull out some that showed a slice of time to give you a bookend between markers. So Broadhouse 2012 um, did a study showing out of 30 birth mothers whose children had their children removed, there were major issues uh, which, uh, which affected their capacity to make choices and positive choices for their children, mental health issues and learning disability being just two. When you look at learning disabilities, and you take a snapshot between 2004 and 2013, 12.5% of parents involved in care proceedings had learning difficulties. That was seen in 2008. And then you got one-sixth in 2004. That's a pretty constant level. And so why is it that the guidance we have, which I should come to in a moment, published in 2007 had to be republished in 2016, which provided all the tools and information professionals to have at their fingertips to work out how to provide support to those who had learning disabilities, how come in between 2007 and 2016 there was a catalogue, a whole library of cases where things haven't been done in the community where the professional guidance is there to say not only what should be done, how they should be done and when they should be done. This is the guidance, good practice guidance on working with parents with a learning disability, catchy title. Not going to be one that your client's going to read. It's one that the professionals need to read. It identifies really clear ways in which you should identify when support is required, when it's not been asked for, and what you should do to deliver it. Accessible and clear information is one of the key key things which should run through everything we do when there are parents with disabilities. Because unless you provide information in an accessible way and you have ways of making sure that that information has been received, internalised, understood with ways in which you can then apply it, we get nowhere. Because otherwise we have blank faces in front of us who simply don't understand what we're talking. I could be talking Cantonese to them and they're an English speaker. So it has to be clear, short explainable, non-jargon language with a method by which you explore how the message has been understood. And there's nothing wrong with drawing pictures. I draw pictures all the time. There's nothing wrong with doing something so basic as pulling out a letter to your client which told her that unless she turned up at the social services office at a certain time, at a certain point, they would take that as a sign of non-compliance and they were seriously considering about taking legal proceedings. And what you do is you get that letter out And you show it to your clients, and you give them a highlighter pen. And you say, can you just highlight on this piece of paper, please, those words that you understand? And what do you find if you do that, as I did? A name is identified, her name. Another name is identified, the child's name. The school is identified, because for many, many, many years, they've gone along and seen that sign there. They associate that shape of the letters with the place, and that means it's a school. But what they can't read is everything in between that says, we are worried about you based on this evidence. That remained entirely virgin of Highlighter. And so it was no surprise my client didn't turn up a meeting. She thought she was being told off yet again for not getting the child in school. That's a very, very different thing from being told that because your child isn't going to school and because you're not making appointments for social services and because they're worried about the standards in your home, they're thinking of starting care proceedings. There is nothing wrong in drawing pictures or using colours and flags and symbols. We should be doing them more often. Key points of practice. People with learning disabilities are individuals first and foremost and each has the right to be treated as an equal citizen. Courts must take all steps to ensure that people with learning difficulties are able to actively participate in decisions. Don't judge competency against stricter criteria or harsher criteria. And don't focus so much on the child that you don't take account of the disabilities in the parent which can be addressed. Don't put up barriers to communication. And don't assume that one cannot parent until you've properly explored whether with support you can parent. Parenting with support, a key phrase, I shan't go over this element again, because if you look back to one of the earlier lectures I gave, which I think is called 2.1 Children, I go through this concept of the case law, which you can dig into if you want to for the background. But just pick up that phrase, parenting with support. And why is that relevant? It's relevant because we have a very creative statutory framework within which we can look to see if a child can remain within the family home. And that covers child assessment orders, child in need plans, which can be delivered through Section 17, Schedule 3, supervision orders, and even with care orders, where the local authorities share parental responsibility, children can be placed at home. But in order for any of those, uh, those sections to be relevant to the family of the child, it's got to have a care plan to make it effective, and it's got to have reviews to make sure that that which is promised to be done can be done And if it isn't being done, is that because the parents have walked away from it or is it because it's not there? And remember, there is no right per se to bring up your child. A child is not a chapel. A child has got a right, just as a parent does, to be brought up within its birth family, but not at the point where to do so exposes it to the risk of avoidable emotional harm of abuse. At that point... And less steps can be put into place to stop that risk of harm being implemented and carried out. Then the child's future must lie elsewhere because the child has a right to be brought up free of avoidable significant harm and abuse. So what do we have to confront? We have to confront that there is little effective evidence of joint working in the community between the services who are essential to identify levels of need within families who have disabled or um, otherwise vulnerable parents. And we we'll want to make this really plain, because otherwise the message from the sector will be skewed unfairly. That is not because social workers have got an agenda to remove children of the families. And it's not because they deliberately discriminate. But nonetheless, families do through, fall through the net. And that is quite often because in the raft of demands that are placed upon our social services, where they move from job to department to department, often without senior manager or support to engage them and to help them learn from their mistakes and without the training that they need and the refresh training they need too often the dialogue that needs to happen between one limb of social services and the other the child and the adult the mental health simply doesn't take place and if it doesn't take place then you don't get the services and you don't get the dialogue question 4 how can a pa- vulnerable parent be helped to ensure their voice is heard in court well, there's, I'm not sure if I'm giving the speakers away, but I think it's accessible on the web. Um, courts have an equal treatment bench book. That's not because they need to be told what to do, it's to show them how what they want to do can be carried into positive effect. And that's because disability places upon the state and upon others the duty to make reasonable accommodation to cater for the special needs of those with disabilities. A new practice direction came in for hot and shiny off the press on the 27th of November 2017, which positively places upon the court and the advocates a duty to identify when there is a vulnerability in either a parent or a witness and positively imposes upon them the requirement to see how that vulnerability or difficulty needs to be addressed so that there can be full participation. And remember what I said about the balance. I'm not going out there carrying out the flag for every parent with a disability ever because there is no blanket standard upon which they can be just. All I'm identifying is that best quality evidence needs to be brought to bear. And that's why a witness can be just as deserving and in need of support when going to give evidence as a parent. So PD3AA is not simply confined to the party concerned. And what measures do we have? These are my favourite insider guides. And the whole list of them is outside. And I positively gush every time I write about them because they are the most magnificent, creative, simple, learner-friendly guides you could possibly have. I'm just the list here. I am going to gush because I do think they are superb. And I am disappointed when advocates appear before me, don't know how wonderful they are, and quite often haven't read them. So, toolkits. You can have a toolkit, literally at the click of your internet finger, which tells you and gives you guidance about how do you identify vulnerability in a uh, party or a witness. What do you do when you have someone who has autism? What do you do when someone's got a hidden language disability? How do you question a child? How do you use an intermediary? How do you structure the courtroom? How do you use special measures? All the questions you might have felt too thick personally to know the answers to. You don't have to worry. People much brainier than us have put their magnificent minds together and told us what to do. The toolkits, the Advocates Gateway is your mastercard in any single situation where you want to know how to do things rightly. There you are, gushing over. This is why we need them this phrase, a case that I won't name the judge of because it did go to the Court of Appeal where the mistake was that with the best will in the world he, she said to counsel in front of them well we'll just try, we'll just try counsel and myself, even me the judge we'll just try to make it easy for the witness who had an IQ of 42 that's not what we do We need specialist people to come in to help us do what we need to be doing, and those specialist people are out there if only we know to ask. So how do we know what to ask? Well, we have this fantastic thing called a ground rules hearing, and a ground rules hearing is where everyone gets together, and they properly, honestly, and in advance identify all of the things that could otherwise be a barrier to getting this case going without any late adjournments, with the best quality evidence available, and they ask questions. You have to think about what communication difficulties there may be. If you've got a party, a parent who has got autism, then noise and strange surroundings or even the simple stress of trying to get through the security system with all those people wanting to look at you as you go through that buzzer and it always goes off, that in itself can mean that a parent doesn't even come into the courtroom, so you need to anticipate that. If you've got a client that's got learning disabilities, how are they even going to get to court? In a case I did a while ago, in order to get our client who suffered from agoraphobia, even near the court building, we had to give her pictorial cards. And so what we did with an iPhone was to take a picture of the house, her house where she lived, and then we took a picture of what she'd see if she turned left, and we took a picture of the bus stop, bus stop, picture of the bus, and we gave her a pictorial foot map to follow in order to get her to the court were telephone numbers of my solicitor, not my own. There are some limits. Um, In order to get her through the court building, because unless we get the parents in the court building, we can't do anything with them. So you need to think creatively about what you do. Intermediaries are where your skills become so woefully inadequate that you need someone to come in and help. Intermediaries are effectively there to undertake an assessment of the vulnerable person or the witness, to identify whether particular disability Has an impact upon their ability to engage or participate, and then to provide ideas about how you might overcome that disability. Effectively, you need to think ahead. Questions. And the purpose of the questions is because what you want is calm, attentive, and engaged witnesses giving calm, focused, reliable evidence before you. And you think about the questions how long are the questions going to last? Are you going to avoid jargon? Are you going to keep sentences short? Are you going to avoid doing what all of us love to do, whether we're juniors or silks or solicitor advocates, which is to make speeches instead of a question? How are you going to adjust your questioning style? Are you going to have breaks in the evidence? And are you, and this is really simple to do once you get into the habit, are you going to recognise that what you can't do is play tricks? You can't jump around with someone with a disability by thinking if you throw this question at them. It's going to throw them and you'll suddenly get truth exploding from their lips. No, you won't do. What you'll get is a really confused witness. You need to take things logically, simply, signposting what the issue is so that they can focus their mind on the area, engage with the question, and then try to give the best answer within it. And you need to think about practical steps if you're talking about vulnerability. Screenings, live links really practical things like if you've got a mother and a father who has a child who the mother claims has been sexually abused by the father and the father has got an alleged history of stalking the mother do you really want them coming in the same entrance at the same time you need to think ahead what are you going to do if the child is going to give evidence and it's a case in which the parents are denying having abused her how are you going to manage that child's arrival and entry from the building? Are you going to make sure that those who need to become familiar with the environment, otherwise they simply will shut down? Are you going to make sure in advance you've arranged them to come into the court building? Familiarise themselves with it, so that at least what you're doing is taking the anxiety of the situational environment away, even if they have to deal with the pressure of questions themselves. Lots of things to do, which um, I identify within the lecture notes. But then question five, this is the one that really gets me, which is, out of all of the things we do in court, how many of them have a legacy once the judge has made their decision? And one of my colleagues on Twitter, because in the main I think Twitter is an amazingly powerful force for sharing information, when I said I was giving this lecture... Um, Sarah Fillamore, posted me to this particular website where a parent had been invited to post a blog. And to hear a parent's perspective about what it's like to be in the middle of proceedings with all these professionals talking about you is something we need to remind ourselves about. And this is what they described of of a Child Looked After Review meeting. They were in a meeting where social workers were being asked to do much more with much less. How they couldn't deliver a service where everything about what service should be provided and from whom was in a state of flux, where teachers were saying they're having to take on more social work in schools beyond their capacity and training, and effectively, she was being described as being part of a challenging family that was being passed around services when early intervention was needed. And it was this that I think struck home when I read it, because I think it's something that we, as professionals, fall into easy, which is the language of casual disrespect being spoken about in the meeting. When you're sitting there as a challenging family that needs intervention, what message is that giving? Do you exist? Are you the family that's being spoken about? Is it okay to be talked about in that way as though you're not in the room? Not to be asked about what's being talked about. As this parent says, is it okay because parents of children in need of services aren't meant to be listening into this intense conversation? Or is it that their opinions don't matter or is it that they simply are thought not to have anything to contribute? Or is it that the professionals are afraid of what they might say? Is it best simply to cut them out because they can't deal with the fact there might be a challenging conversation? Are they too much of a challenge? As this parent said, the only fixed point in the shifting landscape of service provision seems to be to regard families in need of services at the best incompetent and in need of an intervention. So what do we know? Well need to be frank, there is no perfect ending for any family who comes to us when there is disability or difficulty because in the main those difficulties and those difficulties are going to be lifelong. Sometimes if they are fluctuation, if they are, are anxiety driven by stress, then they can be alleviated but they can be cyclical. If there is a constant in its physical disability then the variability might be the support services. The difficulty that we have in these cases is that unless we make the right choice at the right time and we carry on with these families in need, making sure it's still the right choice, then the danger is that we leave children in a situation where what was good enough or maybe better than good enough can dip below good enough because the support services which were anticipated weren't there or because what was deemed to be good enough when the child was a baby or a toddler is no longer good enough when they start moving into adolescence and they become incredibly challenging. And that's reason for us to carry on making sure we positively engage because what we don't want to do is to allow those children to form part of that cohort that Mr Justice Cobb talked about in that very first quote I gave you, where they, become, they have difficulties themselves in parenting because they have themselves become vulnerable by life experiences. So I started with five questions, and you're going to get double for your money, because now you get ten points to take away from this lecture. And they are, parents with disabilities are vulnerabilities, can be good enough parents, as long as their needs are recognised and support services are there which can be put in place. And that means that you can give expression to this phrase, parenting with support. And you need to look at the families individually and not on a homogenous mass and not to let unconscious bias slip into your assessments because you simply assume they cannot do what needs to be done and they cannot change. And that's because multi-agency work and reflective multi-agency skilled work is critical to signpost what they need and to deliver it. Courts need to be careful to ensure that the inability of the parents to gauge is not itself a consequence of the professional's unwillingness to engage or inability, whether because of lack of knowledge or lack of time. And there's a range of creative tools which we have within all of the raft of of the legal provision and the social services and the legal network in order to make sure that what support is is appropriate is delivered. But when the state needs to remove the child from its uh, home, the court has to be proactive in recognising that disability and vulnerability is properly recognised because that's when the family's Article 6 rights to a fair trial are properly engaged. Last three points though, and they're the last three because I think they are the most important. The court should not focus so narrowly on the child's welfare that the needs of the parent arising from the disability are ignored, But support shouldn't amount to substitute parenting, and always, 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 the child comes first. We must work together to ensure that justice is at the centre of our society to secure access for all, whatever their means or abilities, that's what we've been told. Access to justice isn't just a matter of fine words. If it's to be effective, it's got to be something that's delivered, and as um, a hallmark of a civilised society, we should do what we should do, we can do, to make sure it's properly given effect to. And then finally, don't rush to judgement. You know my name, not my story. You've heard what I've done, not what I've been through. You have to suspend judgment until you know what the story is. Vulnerable by adverse experience, that phrase. Take it home and reflect. We've got a duty, he said, and these are my closing words, and I shall say no more after these two paragraphs. We have a duty to recognize the fragility and vulnerability of the many who seek access to justice in these difficult times and circumstances. In order to deliver effective justice, we must continue to remove impediments to their roots of access to justice, to innovate and position the vulnerable at the centre of our practices now and in the future. And I don't think I can perfect on that, but they are words of wisdom, humanity and common sense, and we are very lucky indeed to have judges of that calibre making the type of decisions which are the hardest to make and which I, for one, am very grateful I do not have to do. So, thank you very much for listening. Um, That takes me to the end of this lecture. The next one is going to be a bundle of laughs. (laughs) Dealing with sex abuse. How does the family justice system confront these emotive and complex cases? And I give a warning now. There may be some graphic detail within it, and um, I'll make sure I censor my lecture notes and my comments accordingly. So, disability, difficulty, vulnerability... A balancing act between the needs of the parent and the needs of the child, at what point to intervene, what level of intervention, when do you decide enough is enough, who makes those decisions and what's the evidence that we need in order to make sure you come to the right decision or at least the best decision you can do. I hope you've learned a little from this lecture tonight, but more particularly I hope you know that those questions which I've not even begun to answer have been contemplated by those who are much more skilled and able than I There's lecture notes which give you more guidance than I could possibly do in 55 minutes and I'm leaving you with five minutes to ask me questions.